Hey, I know you guys want to get to the podcast, but if you're a new listener, there are so many people who we have interviewed at this point, and the coronavirus has given us unprecedented access to all the people we've always wanted to talk to. Next up, Barack Obama. We just had... Um, the, <laughs> had Lydia Yankovska, we, yeah. we had Jennifer Rivera-Rice, we had Russell Thomas, Emily Pogorelts, Justin Werner, Zachary James, Laura yes. Dixon Strickling. All right, all right, that's all right, right, just, right, right. That's just, yeah, that's just during the coronavirus, yeah. but um, That's just off the top of my head during the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think we're all looking forward to our very special episode where we hold a seance and uh, talk to the spirit of Vox. For an entire hour. Yeah, actually, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to join us for that one. She's going to take. Oh, Shaw has something to say. I, you know, the world's ultimate opera fan, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, um, Renee Fleming and Joyce DiDonato. Um, they both wanted to be on, so we're just going to put them on the same call because, you know, we're going to kill two birds with one stone. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's coming up We're just up too soon. busy. We have, we have too many people booked. We're going to put them together. Nene seems fine with it. But seriously, uh, subscribe to the podcast on however you listen to podcasts and then just scroll down into our archives and see who we've interviewed. Usually their names appear as the title of the episode. And don't forget to share on Facebook and share on Twitter, even though we probably are not tweeting. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box School. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. Period. From the Ravenswood Studio right here on the north side of Chicago, I'm your host, George Cedarquist, connecting you via video conferencing technology with co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, tonight we begin a three-part spring training for your ears on Richard Strauss's Die Frau ohne Schatten with special guest panelist Harry Rose. And then we go inside the huddle with Timothy Nelson, Artistic Director of Washington, D.C.'s In Series. Find out how they're planning to create a digital opera house. Two-minute drill. The Arena di Verona celebrates Domingo, of all people. Talk a little bit of sports. Uh, Tennis is not a contact sport. And for some reason, here on my hood up in Chicago, our tennis courts have been closed from the very early days of the pandemic without any reason whatsoever. I think our aldermen got a little overzealous and kind of shut everything down, but we're now on the edge of opening them up again. Indeed, some clever souls have cut all the tape and wire that's been holding them shut. And uh, my kids and I have started to play tennis there's nothing more frustrating than teaching children how to play tennis. We all got to learn to do it at some point if we're kids and we want to grow up playing tennis. It's a great sport. I love the sport. But man, teaching children how to play tennis is extremely frustrating. I wonder what Oliver would have to say about that. Let's talk some opera. Let's do some spring training for your ears. Hello. Um, this is me, Harry Rose. Harry Rose, Here. formerly known as Opera Teen. The one and only. I have retired. So, do you have a new moniker? Are you now uh, opera uh, burgeoning man or something? Or no, I yeah, that really. Are you trying to I, keep it gender free? So, opera. I, I write under my own name now, which is liberating, um, and <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. 
Well, anyway, con- before we start, congratulations on being part of the class of 2020, the historic class of 2020. Oh, I am thrilled to be part of the historic <laughs> class of 2020. This is exactly how I saw this saw this working out. Uh, well, now you're going to put that uh, le- higher learning to good use, breaking down uh, what I would actually say is my favorite Strauss opera, believe it or not, uh, Die Frau ohne Schatten, uh, The Lady Without a Shadow is sort of the loose translation there. Um, now, this is one that I think is very uh, interesting to me because in terms of scale, it's one of the larger Strauss works. I mean, uh, Rosenkavalier is pretty hefty, um, and, you know, Elektra is certainly dense, but um, but Frauenschaften is a long opera. It's got a lot of stuff to say, and yet it's probably the least likely uh, opera of Strauss's Lar, a, a more well-known repertoire that you'll actually see staged, um, aside from, you know, Die Friedenstag, which is its own little category. Um, or Guntram. <laughs> Guntram, that classic. But this is, this is I, I would argue, uh, an opera in the weight class of De Rosenkavalier, of Elektra, um, of Zalame. And yet it's, it's kind of always the one people are like, oh, yeah, what's that other one that he wrote? Uh, and I don't know about you, Harry, but I've always had like this little fascination with the piece. I love it. It's, I mean, it is a, it is people, me included. I mean, people love this piece and it is a totally inside baseball work. People <laughs> only, only like the people love to talk about how they love Die Frau on a shot. And it's, it's something that, and th- that's part of why this has been sort of fun and intimidating to dive into it is because it is, it is a very sort of precious piece for the the serious opera fan, and I I, I it was interesting to try to figure out why because I think it's a you know it's a it's a wonderful I mean it's a wonderful score, um, and it's you know it's got its really interesting points. But what is it that is that endears it so much to people that really consider themselves hardcore opera fans and? It has been an interesting question to noodle with. It is one of those operas that whenever I hear it spoken about by people who know it, they say how much they love it and how beautiful it is. Nobody doesn't, nobody that talks about this opera speaks about it negatively. You either love it or you don't talk about it. Or you don't know about it. (laughs) (laughs) To the point that hardly anyone ever refers to it by its own name. It's like, it's either Frau or Die Frosch, which is like a pun because it's the initials and it spells the word frog in German which is extremely good, and I do love that. Uh, and in many ways, it kind of is a bit of a frog of a piece. So uh, the way we're going to do this is we're going to break it down over the next three episodes. The first episode, we're going to sort of deal with plot and sort of give you a sense of the general musical atmosphere. The Next week, we're going to go into more depth on the characters and their music, and then we're going to spend the entire third session devoted for devoted to what makes this opera as great as it is the finale. Better than Candide? Um, oh, absolutely. Tough competition <laughs> there. All respect to George. <laughs> so I, I want to give you a little bit of a historical uh, uh, context before we dive in. Um, the first performance of this opera was in 1919. It was delayed because of World War One. Uh, it uh, was not well received when it first uh, uh, premiered, um, although it did kind of sort of 
he stick to the repertoire of some theaters here and there, and it's had a bit of in recent years. Um, but it is, um, it's very much, uh, it, it's a, 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 the product of a collaboration between Hugo von Hoffmannsthal, who is the librettist, and Richard Strauss. And we all know that uh, Hoffmannsthal has been sort of a secret uh, success to a lot of Strauss's uh, earlier hit operas. But in many ways, um, the, there is some tension between the libretto and the music, which we'll uh, get into. But before we go any farther, we should probably start talking about the plot. Yeah. Uh, God. Do you want to take us away on that, Harry? Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, this is a... And one of the things that I've been thinking about most in prepping this piece is kind of what it means to be a fairy tale and what it means mm. to like sort of tell a fairy tale and also to hear a fairy tale, especially as an adult. Um, and this is a hardcore fairy tale. Like this is like they're, you know, these sort of spiritual, I don't know, what would you call, what would you classify the emperor and empress as? They're, they're, they're almost like the Wagnerian gods. I, I get such a vibe of the ring cycle off of this yeah, opera. Yeah, like sort of like gods with a, that, you know, more or less look like people, unless they're gazelles, we'll get into it. Um, <laughs> but there, there's them, there's like, you know, literal sort of very base earth, you know, dwellers, there are spiritual messengers, there are, there's, there's a lot going on. So the, the sort of necessary backstory to this is that this, the opera is going to follow two, basically the journey of two couples, one who are this emperor and empress of this sort of mystical realm that is, I guess, technically geographically connected to earth, even though the things that happen on earth seem to not really have a bearing like in terms of physical events on the things that happen in their sort of spiritual realm. So it's this emperor and empress and a dyer of fabric and his wife. And the empress, there's this fifth character who's the empress's nurse, who is sort of this character that drives the plot. Um, so yeah, basically the, the backstory is that the empress was, the emperor is an avid hunter. The empress was once a gazelle. Um, she was in possession of this Trash. magic talisman. The emperor went out to hunt one day and shot the gazelle. And as he was like seizing upon the gazelle, she turned into the empress that we know in the opera. And the unique part about the empress that we know in the opera that was once a gazelle is that she does not have a shadow. What does that mean, Weston? Well, that's a good question. Uh, that it's it's sort of it's not implied it's it directly connects the idea of not having a shadow to essentially not being able to have uh children or not having children it's um, yeah, everything every everything in this story every symbol it's a like i'm a complete person so that's sort of where I, I strike at this from and every symbol in the story really weirdly has both a literal and a metaphorical significance. So when they talk about not having a shadow, it is this symbol for not, you know, it's sort of a, a, a more holistic that versus biological attitude towards child rearing. It's like you don't, you, you're not interested in having children. You biologically can't have children. It's kind of all those things rolled into one. Right. Plus, it is a literal shadow. They're like, look at her. There's nothing on the ground. It's such a mean trick to play on the lighting designer to have 
Someone who's not supposed to have a shadow. Uh, (laughs) Especially when there are other moments where suddenly the shadow shows up. You know, it's a a real mess. Um, So anyway, yeah, why don't you take it from there? Sure, I'll do my best. So we have uh, we have this situation where she doesn't have a shadow, uh, and the, the, a messenger shows up and informs uh, her nurse that uh, he's the messenger of Kikobad, who uh, never appears on stage, um, uh, and I don't think he technically sings. You kind of hear voices that imply him, but I don't think he actually has a part. Um, he and he, for some reason, has uh, decided that the Empress has to have a shadow, or else um, her husband, the Emperor, will turn into stone. And why is that? I don't know, but that's okay. <laughs> the The opening of the of the opera is all about not really sort of not really sort of showing the story. It's about telling the story and introducing leitmotifs. The first, uh, the first scene of this opera is such an exercise in what I call musical exposition. You know, uh, you know about exposition in terms of stories, but in musically, it introduces you know these various motifs. Uh, the dun 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 is she sings when when they sing a, uh, when it's first mentioned. The emperor will be turned to stone, so you know that's the stone motif. There's there's all sorts of motifs that are introduced like that. With the awakening, and you get I, the the people that I'm. I love Strauss, and this opera opens like with Don Don Don, which is the Kaikobad motif. Which like what is the other Strauss opera that opens with like the motif of like the most important character that you don't see on stage? It's the first thing you hear. It's Electra. That would be the Agamemnon chord in Electra. The Agamemnon chord. So this is he's like really using this exact same technique. And I think, you know, like we can get into it, but I, I do think that you can construe that Kaikobad is the voice of the orchestra in this story. Um, that, that is the thing that I think most attracts people to this opera is the use of the orchestra in, in almost a capacity that sort of goes beyond um, uh, normal orchestral writing. Uh, into the land of uh, essentially symphonic poems uh, because it's so descriptive. It's so, uh, there are these long interludes that you, uh, that you hear. Um, I'm speaking of into the land. So what are we about to hear? <laughs> yes. So the, the first, so basically we haven't mentioned the Falcon yet. There is present at the scene of the emperor shooting the empress and her turning from gazelle into person at the beginning or even before the curtain comes up is this falcon who is there and the emperor sees the falcon and he sort of leads him to the gazelle so we're excited about the falcon but then also the gazelle starts to or the falcon starts to scratch the gazelle and then the emperor throws a knife at him so the gazelle starts to bleed but basically when the the empress has woken up and gone outside on her terrace after the emperor has gone to hunt for the day um she sees that falcon that assumedly she has not seen since it tried to claw her eyes out when she was still a jungle animal. And this is what we hear.
you just heard the um, sort of entrance of the falcon, and this falcon motif is at least the reason why I thought it was an important thing, mostly because you hear it sort of, a lot of the leitmotifs in this opera are like twisted and changed throughout. This one stays pretty much intact, but I think it, in, a, in its way, I think it sets up really nicely sort of the way this piece treats sort of thematic and plot-based musical exposition. So first you just get it in the flutes, then you get it in the flutes with the chords underneath, then you get it in the voice, then back to the flutes, but the voice is hitting differently on the notes. There's this sort of weird segmentation of what is introduced as music, what is introduced as sound, that the diegetic sound in the piece, and then what is introduced as sort of an idea or literal words. And I think you get that there that metaphor or, you know, that sort of segmenting and redistributing of ideas across time is, I think, part of what makes this piece so rich, but also so confusing. And it's really thematically driven, too. I, I love how uh, in a lot of Strauss's orchestral writing, particularly, you have uh, a lot of symphonic uh, poets, as it were, people who try to write program programmatic music, stick generally to plot. This sound represents this event, this thing happening. It kind of sounds like whatever it is. But Strauss is always very ambitious. You know, he, he uh, the the tone poem Also Sprach Zarathustra is very much a, uh, that's a hard poem to translate without any words. Uh, but it succeeds because there's a, there's this consciousness of what, not just the feel of the music or the feel of the text, but what the text is really trying to say on a deeper level. But at the same time, it's hard for this opera to really parse together what the text is actually saying because Hoffman Stahl, is it? Uh, or Stahl, I believe. Uh, Matt, you can correct me either way on that one. Um, on it, I looked it up. It is it is Hoffman Stahl. Okay, Hoffman Stahl. <laughs> you have this interesting sort of, um, you, you have what is essentially this dissonance between sort of the symbolist uh, idea that um, that what is uh, that what humans experience are just part of like this bigger, greater mystic thing, and Hoffman Stahl's uh, insistence that it has to have this human element, and I think this start this line of demarcation starts to evolve uh, in this next clip, uh, where we have uh, the end of sort of the uh, the the first the first part of the opera where you have. Uh, basically all these unearthly characters, these gods, these sort of magical beings singing. And then they literally have an orchestral moment, which is practically right the, out of the ring cycle. The flight to Neverland also. Yeah. Like they basically, the, the Empress resolves to find this shadow and they, over the course of the sort of two and a half minutes of this interlude, go from whatever, it, it, where they are has a name, like the South the South Islands or something, a really ambiguous Somewhere name. like that. <laughs> um, and go from there to like the, like the Welt der Menschen, literally like the man world that is also geographically. Mm, tell me more about that. And there's, there's a, <laughs> and there's a change in the music from this sort of unearthly kind of sound to this fragmented sort of stabbing world of, people and of humans. And it, it, it really does remind you of the descent into Nibelheim 
in the ring cycle, even almost down to the, the hammer strikes being replaced by the sort of this whipping noise at the very end. So let's just hear a little bit of that. Oh, I should say that all of these clips, at least for today's session, are coming from the 1992, 19, excuse me, 1992 uh, Sir uh, George Schulte recording. Um, that's the studio recording. Uh, and this is their sort of descent into the world of man. <laughs> is this fighting that is going on between these three um, brother, three of 13 brothers that belong so to... <laughs> is that why there's so many men there? To... They're all brothers? <laughs> well, they, one of them has one arm. One of them uh, has one eye. What's uh, the last one? They, like, I think he's a hunchback. The hunchback, yeah. 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 Are any of them um, twins? I really like twins. <laughs> <laughs> all right, go on, go on, um, go on. sorry. So we, they are fighting, and the what, this clip sort of cuts right off where the Dyer's wife, who she does not get a name. In fact, the only character in this opera that has a name besides for Kaikobad is the Dyer, whose name Barak. 
Um, no relation to uh, the former president. No relation mm. to the former president. Thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> and so these are Barak's brothers and they're fighting and his wife like dumps a bucket of water on them to make them stop fighting. And he comes home from work and she says, you need to get these people out of my house. The reason we don't have children is because I don't want to deal with the consequences of having people in my house that I need to take care of. She is not interested in having children, which sort of, this is where we're sort of most set up with the pieces dilemma about, you know, having children and what it means to have children and what your responsibilities are in terms of having children. Um, and wait, Matt, are you? Yeah. And I, what I really find interesting about the Dyer's wife's music is that you can tell so much about Strauss characters who are sopranos. You can really tell their characterizations apart. And so the Empress's introduction is this really virtuosic, glorious, uh, entrance aria where she gets to be dynamic and, uh, trill and go all the way up to a high D and the, the dyer's wife comes in and she's just, she's hectoring and shrill and she's just shrieking. Yeah. But then conversely, like the weird part about this, like, and maybe this was when I saw this, it was when the Met last did it and Christine Gerke was the dyer's wife. And it was such a, it was such a wonderful performance. And she really did sort of walk away with the evening because you do like, you know, the, they are people. The, everyone in this piece is sort of a being, but the people are people. And the Dyer's wife is maybe the most relatable of all the people, despite all of her mm. flaws that they all take pains to highlight. Um, so he comes home and tries to sort of calm her down. She is, you know... Not, not having it. Not, not having it. Um... And this next clip is going to be after he sort of has a, they have a little back and forth. He's like, when are you going to give me children? She's like, you're never going to get children from me. And he's like, well, all right then. Um, And you get this just, this is my favorite moment in the entire piece. What the orchestra plays um, is sort of this conjugal love theme. Um, I know we think of like, cause like it's, it's like in the title of Fidelio that it's like this, you know, the celebration of conjugal love or whatever. That is this piece more than absolutely Fidelio. more than Fidelio. That is that is Defrat on a Shotten.
And there you have it, sexier than Fidelio. Uh, Harry said it himself <laughs> in those words. Than Fidelio and twice as long. <laughs> and that's the good stuff, right? That's uh, what I'm here for. A lot of this opera, I feel like, uh, feels like a, um, a homage to previous operas. Uh, there's sort of a, a, a an almost postmodern sense of relating back to other works. Uh, a lot of people will point out. Yeah, I think uh, both, like in terms of the the content and in terms right. of what the, the pieces. This is, I mean, Hofmannsthal, I think, said this that this is. Like romantic, the the romantic book, the romanticism book, kind of stops with this opera, and it is a at this point in the world, like World War One was, you know, sort of happening, and there there is so much tumult. We're at the end of like that decadent symbolist movement, so people are sort of like inhaling the toxicity of their own material obsession, and this piece does, you know, if it if. if if it's because if it feels didactic, it's I think sort of because it is because it's trying to it's almost trying to be that sort of wholesome entertainment that brings you out of the the world that it was created in, which in a lot of ways is very similar to the world now, and then takes you into a time where the values are different, but it uses a, a contemporary aesthetic to do it. It really feels like an updated um, sort of uh, magic flute, really, in terms of themes, in terms of the idea of masculine, feminine, children, uh, having many, many papaganos and papaganas, uh, but in a more sort of concentrated 20th century setting. And in a way, I would say that was kind of dying out uh, at the time in the on the opera stage. Most German audiences we're starting to look for the post-World War One darker sort of uh, um, vote sex on the horizon. Um, but, uh, but here is here is Strauss making his first, you know, well, really his second or third step after Rosenkavalier into sort of the world of Mozart. And, and, um, and it also represents sort of a re-examination of sort of the, the the themes that Wagner brings to the table in terms of femininity and what it means to uh, have power over your own destiny and over the destiny of others. There's all sorts of like little references here and there. And I think we'll probably get into more of those uh, next week when it comes to Wagner at least, because as you all know, I will talk about Wagner for days and I have to rein myself in. We do else, know that. Or, yes. or else or else Oliver uh, uh, gets very, very mad and then doesn't let me on the podcast anymore. So. I have to <laughs> rein myself in for today. Um, and magic, I, magic flute, I want to also say, is an interesting comparison because of the way that you have the, the different strata of the characters, the, mm -hmm. the noble characters versus the Pamina, 
Pamina and Tamino versus the bass couple of Papagena Papagena have completely different music, completely different styles, completely different things to say. And while Strauss, you know, links the two worlds together a little bit more than Mozart does, uh, that that kind of gulf in between them is still there. And there's also characters that represent <laughs> gods, you know, like in Zarastro and Queen of the Night. That's a different Yeah, and hierarchy, the fun you know? in the opera is when he, like, buffets the two up against each other. And you hear, like, the music from the sort of higher realm versus the music from the, you know, just the earth and this piece sort of really revels in its transitions. Strauss absolutely reveled in creating those transitions, um, which is what makes it so satisfying from an or- orchestral standpoint. And it, like to, to sort of come back to that theme um, that we just heard, it is, it, it's sort of, there's these introduction of these instrumental themes, and then they get played with in the text, they get passed around, they get quoted with the text gets quoted again with different music the music gets quoted again with different text it's there's a lot of manipulation happening that is really interesting and also really cries out for like a visual representation this piece needs in it needs to be it needs a strong hand to be realized oh absolutely the the roles i mean even even just the singing is just so brutal yeah, there's not another opera that uh, you watch it and you think like oh my god these people are work every single person is working so hard <laughs> uh and in you know it's it requires these jumps in t- in place just on a dime uh, and you get a little bit of you know a little bit of interlude here and there to make it happen. But uh, a lot of times in order to match what's happening in the orchestra pit musically, you need uh, a, you need a really big budget. Chris and the nurse show up to the hut and they come up to the dyer's wife and basically proposition her to buy the shadow off of her. And she's like, well, I'm not really sure. And they're like, well, I will show you wonders like you've never seen. And they like conjure like all of these fine clothes and conjure like just a young man to sit with. From a broom, I believe. And then From a broom. broom. Yeah. broom. I'm not sure what Oliver's stance is on hot young man brooms, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure I he's... Think you, I think you know what it is. <laughs> so, uh, that as long leads as it's made from wood s- and not plastic. <laughs> I did see uh, the, the production I saw most recently was definitely a plastic broom because mm. they updated it. Uh, so, sorry, Oliver. Uh, so, yes, it, it all leads into... Um, this this crisis where um, they basically strike a deal and they say they'll stick around for a few days, and um, and uh, will they'll take the shadow from her and in return, uh, she gets all this cool stuff. Barack is just so meantime, like things are getting worse. Like she's the the consequence of her sort of striking this deal with them is indirectly that she becomes sort of even less tolerant of her husband. Mm-hmm. So she, he like comes home and. She's like, and then I'll show him his bed, which I will refuse to him. And it, she's, she's in a way, she's kind of badass. But you know, you you feel her hurt. You feel, you feel this. This this is a very sympathetic character. This is like the character. This was Birgit Nilsson's last role at the Met. Was oh, the Dyer's oh. wife. This is like it. It is a it is a character that I think singers really love to play. It is a character I think audiences probably enjoy to watch more than they admit. Yeah, and. And so it all comes to a head. Uh, things, uh, basically, the, the Empress is having a crisis of conscience for using this woman. The nurse has gotten more and more nasty. 
things get up to a head um, where uh, the the dyer seems to be uh, gets get mad at her and he he threatens her and basically everything breaks down musically. Um, you feel the influence of some higher power, some higher magic going on. It's not entirely clear what, uh, but it's also clear when you're reading the libretto that it's supposed to be something, you know. Hold on, I can tell you what it is. Oh, it, oh, hit me, Harry, hit me. It is. Okay. <laughs> so basically at this at this point in the opera, like Barak has finally been told that his wife is gonna give up the shadow. Right. And she says, you know, kill me, I regret it. Or maybe she's sort of given it up indirectly because they shine a light on her and there's no shadow. Um, but she's like, kill me. I, you know, I deserve it. This was a mistake. I actually haven't quite gone through with it yet. So the, in the libretto, it says, Barak lifts the sword, but it flies out of his hand. The earth opens and Barak and his wife are swallowed up through the cracked river or through the cracked walls, the river pours into the room. destruction of the dyer's hut um the the singular voice you heard is the nurse who is basically saying like you know there's magic afoot come with me empress um get in my boat that will ride on a river back to the sort of spirit realm where we come from to be judged by kaikobad that is somewhat conveniently accessible from the dyer's hut on earth even though we had to take a whole peter pan flight plot and that, that that moment, it, it, that moment is such a good example of what sets this opera apart from a lot of Strauss, because outside of his uh, really Zalame and Electra, this opera goes to some really dark, intense, expressionistic places um, that you don't really have, you know, once post Rosen Cavalier. Uh, and this was sort of his last hurrah in the realm of that weird modernist experimental compositional style um, where you have uh, a lot of really interesting things going on musically that are dissonant, that are dependent on uh, uh, um, the overtone series in a way that traditional, you know, major keys and minor keys and things like that are not uh, not beholden to. It, it's it's just a completely different musical world that you're entering here that you don't really get before and you definitely don't get after. Uh, and that, I think, is what I find so attractive about this opera. And the challenge of that, too, is also that I, I am continuously struck by with this opera that it does sort of feel set apart from the others because there is absolutely no discernible aesthetic in it. You have right. no idea from the music sort of what anything is visually, you know, you understand that, oh, this is destruction. Oh, this is love. Oh, this is peace. Oh, this is, you know, a sort of general awakening, but not 
you never have an idea of what that visually looks like. And that is, that is something that I think lends this opera really, you know, despite the fact that you have to do, you know, sort of suggest things like the river pouring into a room, but it does also lend itself really well to a visual, you know, it is, it is a stage work and it is not, you know, it is an opera, it is a tone poem, but it is a, it is a stage work also importantly. So what happens next is essentially something we'll go into much greater detail uh, on in other episodes, because that's where I really want to start breaking down the music. Um, but to give you a general sense of what happens, uh, generally the uh, after the destruction of the hut, the dyer and the wife are basically in a prison underneath uh, the, the fortress of Kekobad, um, and basically to be judged. The nurse and the uh, um, and the empress have a falling out because the empress has realized that in order to get a shadow, she would basically be destroying a human soul in in some capacity, uh, and she can't really stand for that. And it the ends up has turned to stone in the meantime. The, exactly, so fully petrified. So she has this situation where her husband is turned to stone, but she can't save him unless explicitly she uh, drinks this magical water and uh, and that will enable her to take the, sh the shadow away from uh, the human. She refuses in a scene we'll go into much greater detail in in a couple weeks. Uh, and uh, essentially she gets rewarded with her own shadow from Kikabad for standing up for herself. Uh, and she is able to bear children, and the um, the the dyer and the uh, um, and the wife um, realize the error of their ways, and they're going to be peaceful, and they're going to bear children. And then there's a big chorus of unborn children, and everyone's having children, basically. So then you watch this whole thing, and you're like, okay, that was odd. <laughs> and and, I, and and so I think the great sort of tension here is between the libretto and the music. During the process of composing, uh, Hoffmannsthal and Strauss had a fairly, you know, intense back and forth. And I think a lot of it was around the idea that Strauss wanted a lot of scenes that were a lot more dramatic in terms of uh, staging and specific action on stage. But uh, Hoffmannsthal, who wrote the libretto as sort of a, an epic poem first, and I think later re-released it as sort of a poem with some additions, as I recall. Um, it, he, he was going for something that was very fundamentally undramatic, almost a, a Pelias and Maisillon sort of feel. Um, and, uh, and as a result, not I, I think that's the reason that this opera didn't make it into the, re the common repertoire. But does it really deserve to not be in the repertoire. I, I think that there's, I'm not sure if the libretto and the music achieves some sort of cohesion. I know Harry, you and I, before we started, we had a bit of a debate going on as to whether it did or not. Um, yeah, I, so I, this sort of connected in my head through a very weird web that starts at when like Netflix rebooted Full House and <laughs> I watched, so I, I like grew up on Full House and I was like so excited when they announced that they were doing it again on Netflix. And I like watched the first episode and I was like, wow, this is actually like, this is a children's show. This is not that interesting. What am I, 
what like what you know what am, what am I watching this for and I think we sort of get that attitude towards fairy tales and towards fantasy and this is a real this is really like a fairy tale in a very unabashed way and it's drawing from like Carlo Gozzi who's completely sort of the Italian fairy tale teller a thousand nights um there's there it is a very overdetermined work with a lot of stuff in it and I think there that is all sort of engaged in like a non-programmatic symbolist way so it's it's really hard to sort of dig into it and then it's even harder when you realize that everything in the work between the music and the libretto and the staging is actually working towards achieving a different end like I think the libretto is sort of working to fill out the parts of a fairy tale that we're, you know, kind of familiar with. Like fairy tale characters aren't particularly memorable. Not, you know, the dyer's wife is sympathetic, the dyer is sympathetic, but these are not, you know, incredible, wonderful, memorable characters. If the opera doesn't sit in the pantheon with the rest of the Strauss operas, then the characters definitely don't sit in the pantheon with the rest of the Strauss characters. And the music is sort of affording that dimension of magic. I mean, it sounds corny, but the music is magic in this piece. And mm. there's a really wonderful staging that I've been watching from the Salzburg Festival in 2011. And it has like its holes, but it's it's the Christoph Loy production. And the whole scenario of the concept is that they are recording a perform, they're doing a studio recording of Die Frau ohne Schatten sort of vaguely based on the lore around the first recording of it and all you know the characters in the characters that are playing the singers that are recording the score all sort of have traits of the characters of the opera and then the music introduces this magic that makes you know it's it's a it's a crazy concept but it makes a lot of sense because the music is sort of what is kicking out this story that doesn't make a whole lot of sense into a third dimension and really doing that consistently throughout it in a way that I find very compelling towards achieving a whole, but I understand if it's not convincing to everybody. And we will be pursuing that third dimension next week on Opera Box Score. So if you're a new listener, if you have just started listening to Opera Box Score because you saw that we interviewed Lydia Yankovskaya or Zachary James, um, there are more people that you're going to hear from by listening to Opera Box Score. And the only way to get that podcast in your ear holes when it's ready is by smashing that like button or that subscribe button on Stitcher. Don't make us wait. Don't make us beg you again. You know you want to. It's, I'm on my iPhone. I'm doing it right now. It's two taps. It's super easy. Dos tapos. Two taps. So, yeah, be the first to hear all the latest news from the opera world and to hear great interviews on super high-fidelity recording equipment, <laughs> which is our brand during coronavirus. A great film and an even better setup. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle.
N-Series works with Washington, D.C. artists and communities to create innovative theater grounded in opera and song, reimagining these forms and folding in an expanding range of aesthetic and cultural traditions. Artistic director Timothy Nelson joins us. Tim, thanks for hanging out tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be with you guys. Uh, Got to make sure. How are you feeling, buddy? What's your pulse like right now? Uh, I don't know. I think I, I'm at a point where language seems to have fallen apart. It doesn't, there are no words. Great. Let's hope you can get those words together for the next 20 <laughs> minutes while we do this segment. Again, so glad to have you on the show. Right after the pandemic started, so we're in the middle of March right now, until, uh, you know, maybe middle of April, end of April, maybe even May, I felt like a lot of the opera that was produced immediately after the pandemic began really was essentially art therapy. What was your take on the opera that was being created in the early days of the pandemic? You mean the the online stuff? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it it was art therapy. I mean, that's a good way of putting it. But I feel that that was, that was a good thing. That was an okay thing. I mean, it kind of reminded us that art is supposed to be therapeutic. And not only for audiences, but for for artists alike. And I, I hope that it kind. Of, I mean, in the next year, we're going to see a lot of really slick, high production value stuff from big companies. Not all of which is going to be meaningful, I think. And hopefully, we'll remember the lesson of that: that not everything needs to be well produced or to look flashy in order for it to have a, a depth of meaning. So, so I enjoyed that first month. I quickly got tired of seeing singers and their ukulele on Facebook. That got old fast. <laughs> Yeah. Ooh, so, ouch, Stephanie all right. Blythe. Yeah, all love to <laughs> Stephanie Blythe, but. All right, so April 30th, InSeries is the first opera company in the world to articulate its intention to present a completely digital season. And, and this is one that's radically and responsibly meaningful. I mean, when you look at the pandemic, here we are six weeks in at April 30. That is a very quick point to move to a completely digital season. How did you get there so fast and so specific? It's June yeah, 1st, I mean, I, by the way. What do you mean April 1st? June 1st. <laughs> Scary as heck. <laughs> um, we actually made that decision even maybe three weeks before we made the announcement. It took us a while to get all the ducks in the row where we felt we could make an announcement. For me, it happened really fast. Um, and it was a it was a confluence of things. The 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 first was that as an artist, I my safe space, the place that I feel um, happy and nurtured, is when I'm when I'm planning stuff. And so the inability to plan for the next season was really hard on me emotionally. So I I wanted a, a selfishly I wanted a way to be able to plan. I also it just didn't calculate in my head how we were going to be able to produce until there was an effective vaccine. That that just uh, didn't make sense for me. Um, and I it was one thing for us to have to use force majeure and cancel on all our artists for our final production. And luckily, we were able to to find a way to 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 compensate them all. But it just didn't feel ethical to go into a season making promises to artists that we knew there was a good chance we weren't going to be able to to be good on. And then I just thought there were these like unbelievable opportunities all of a sudden to do the things that that a lot of us, myself included, have been saying we want to do for years, like to really tear apart the form and figure out what it ha- what happens if we call a 20 minute piece suffi- completely sufficient to be an opera? What happens if we can release opera episodically or all these things that when 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 the economy, the industry of opera is in a normal place, we can't do. Um, and I felt like 
it would be a waste of an opportunity for small companies like us not to really jump on the chance to do something radical. Um, and then the big thing was just getting over myself. I mean, I, I'm a live theater guy and I love the, the human voice as it is. I don't want to hear it recorded or amplified. But when I started doing the math on uh, the accessibility factor, like how we could really reach people that we've been saying um, for a long time we want to reach, but we, we haven't really been doing that in any meaningful way. And for us, for instance, we, we perform in these bougie white neighborhoods in Ward 1 of DC. And it's, it's a bit insulting even for me to expect someone's going to come to a neighborhood that they don't belong in, pay $50 for an art form that they may or may not feel comfortable in. They don't know the rituals. So this, this provided us a way to be immediately accessible, totally free to everyone and to do that uh, in a meaningful way. And, and then, it, then it was clear that it just felt it would be unethical to, to not take, up, take that opportunity. Tim, you touched on it, and I'm, I want to just dig a little bit further. Can you tell us, you said you're in D.C., can you tell us who your audience is? And I also want to know who your artists are. Like, what audience are you trying to serve, and what artists do you have access to to fulfill that mission? Yeah, sure. I mean, audience uh, is changing a lot since I came on. It's, it's sort of in a radical shift. Um, but one great thing about D.C. is you have a really um, well highly educated, curious group of people. So they're willing to take big risks artistically. Um, but you also have, it's a very expensive city. Uh, so you, we have, um, you know, the, the uh, uh, picture of, of an opera audience. I mean, they're older, they're white. Um, no matter what I do, I can get some movement for one production, but getting new audiences to return for another production has been a real challenge. Um, we've seen our we've seen our audience get younger and get um, more diverse in the last couple of years, but you know it's a it's a moving target with 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 the whole opera game. Um, uh, it is um, DC's also um, particular in in that it has a big theater audience. Um, when I lived here 20 years ago, that wasn't the case, but now we have this huge indie theater scene. We have almost no uh, indie opera scene. So a lot of our work has been trying to reach the theater audience and convince them that this is something that, that, um, that, they, can, that they will enjoy and they can take in. Um, and artists, it's also a struggle because DC doesn't have a conservatory. So we have uh, the students that come out of Maryland, which are at a very high level, and the students that come out of Peabody, but not a lot want to stay in the area, especially because DC is so expensive. So we've really cultivated a small family of artists um, that we expand slowly over the time, and we pray that they'll stay in the in the area. But that's that's a big challenge for us, especially since our mission is to serve local artists. Um, and as we, I've slowly mixed in um, international artists over the last two years. We've we've worked hard to try and find local artists that you know are at the same level and can keep up with that. And your company has come up a couple of times already on our show. But just for those who have not been tuning in for all thousand episodes that we put out. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about the brand of InSeries? Like what types of works are you trying to produce and how do you distinguish yourself as an ind independent opera company? Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, that's such a hard question, actually. Um, uh, we do a lot of work with the canon, uh, oddly enough, um, and sort of deconstructing and reconstructing the canon. Um, and maybe I can express the brand best by, by example. So we started with a eight 
singer, one piano version of the Verdi Requiem that had an actress doing a one woman version of King Lear over top of it. Um, we did a version of Butterfly for four singers and a prepared piano that was all jumbled and out of order. We did a version of the Handel's Ersay that mixed in poetry of Rumi and used a mix of Persian instruments and, and Western Baroque instruments. So, so that's sort of the most on brand for us. We do a lot of devised things with American Songbook, which has been a historical area that we've worked in. Um, so for instance, last year, we did a, a new version of Shakespeare's Tempest with Billie Holiday's music called Stormy Weather that looked at the play from the perspective of the the African enslaved characters uh, in, in Shakespeare's play. We do a lot of work that is focused on social justice issues. Um, that's, a, that's a big part of our brand um, uh, for right now. And then historically, we've done a lot of uh, programming for the Latinx community. So that has traditionally been Zarzuela, which really isn't my thing. I'm working to grow to love it. Uh, but for instance, next year, we'll do a version of Bohem that is set in Columbia Heights, which is the neighborhood we perform in that's heavily uh, an immigrant neighborhood and it will be translated into Spanish and English and look at gentrification and coming of age in that neighborhood. Um, so we do a lot of work with that community. Well, let's take a look at next season then. So what was originally planned and then how are you going to maintain as much of that, that thrust and those ideas on a new multi-platform approach? So our next season was totally about um, diversity and making opera not a white space. Um, and we had one of the things we had to cancel was this huge gala where we were giving uh, an award that will now be an annual award we give for for diversity. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was coming to give out the award. And for us, it would have been a major thing. Um, and we would have announced that night the start of a new young artist program uh, called the Cardwell Caldwell. Um, Young Artist Program, so it's named for Mary Cardwell Dawson, who uh, founded the National Negro Opera Company, originally in Pittsburgh, but then in DC in the 40s and 50s. Um, and it would have been the first uh, Young Artist Program exclusively for singers of color. Uh, and then when this all happened, we quickly realized we weren't gonna have the resources to support that in a meaningful way. Um, so we're still doing all the shows that were part of that original season, which were a, a version of, of Fairy Queen, um, a American Songbook, which is a will be a staging of the uh, um, the song cycles by it's George Crumb's take on Civil War songs and African American spirituals. Um, uh, the Bohem that I mentioned. Then we're commissioning a new version of Flute that'll be for six singers and a an, uh, a local hip hop artist um, that'll sort of try to cure the piece of its its you know, misogyny and, and racial problems. Um, and the new season will contain all of those things and still use those four artists that we had selected. And instead of having them be in an official young artist program, instead they'll be work with an advisory group of, of local activists and, and arts leaders of color to create that program for the future. So to sort of design the program um, that, that they would have been in this first year. Uh, so I'm sorry, and, I, I, before you get to the next point, I just want sure. to, before I lose the thread here, you hinted a little bit earlier about how um, you don't necessarily know who your audience is. And it's, you know, you know that there's like this core, you know, blue haired, white, older audience. But you seem to be doing these projects that have this social justice component in mind. How do you market those individual projects while trying to maintain like a company brand? 
So we we are blessed to have a loyal audience, um, and they're very. Um, I mean, like I said, DC is a very educated audience, and it's a very liberal audience. So they're so far they've been willing to go with me on these things. Um, and the the trick so far has also been collaboration. So for instance, last year we did a big piece on we did the Berlioz L'Enfant um, yeah. um as uh, looking at immigration and and what it means to offer hospitality to the stranger when they come. But we did it in collaboration with with the major Methodist church in DC that's very social justice oriented. So we sort of could bank on reaching a new audience that would more than make up for whatever. Uh, amount of our audience was wanted more traditional stuff that, that we weren't offering. But do you see um, those and, people and, coming to other productions? Like if you're doing a project specifically targeted towards X community, do you see them come to something else? So that is that is a challenge across the board. It uh, we do to a bit, not certainly not what I would like. Um, and part of creating this young artist program was next year was what if we're using this community of artists, the young artists, but all I mean the the emerging artists, but also creators of color, directors of colors, music directors of colors, but not, you know, not bringing them in to do Porgy and Best, bringing it, we're going to do Bohem and Standard Rep um, and see if that brings in another network of audience that we haven't been able to reach. Because we do a lot of like, we, in the past, we've done pieces like, uh, we did something called U Street to the Cotton Club that was looking at Duke Ellington's music and the history of Black Broadway, which is where our offices and our theater are located. And for that, we'll have an incredibly diverse audience. But getting them to return for the Zerse, which then we had a very, uh, DC House is a, a, a huge Persian community. We had a great Persian audience, but getting them to come back for L'Enfance de Christ, that's been the challenge. So, so trying to use those artists and those networks of artists, but in non- uh, affinity pieces is our is our next step. We're talking with Tim Nelson, artistic director at the In Series. Tim, as we talked about the content, I want to talk to you about the form. What do you see as the the goods and the evils of the various technologies that we're going to need to make opera happen in the future? Well, the first thing I'd say is I'm the I'm the last person I would expect to be start doing a virtual opera season. I, I'm so far outside of my generation, let alone generations to come in terms of technology. Um, I think there's an advantage to that sometimes. So for instance, the opera house we're designing, because I know nothing about web design, we've come up with a concept for it, which doesn't line up at all with, with any website out there. It'll be really like a virtual experience where you enter a space and there's a um, uh, the opera house on this side and there's a black box on this side and there's a bar here where you can go hang out or have a watch party and there's a live studio there. Um, and so, so I think that's a strength there. Um, there's challenges. I think we haven't figured out as an industry the value of um, seeing the body actually producing the sound. So as much as I wish the Met broadcasts were more than just a staged video. I love that the sound is actually coming from the singer's mouth at that moment. Um, but then there's a strength to being able to have the full out physicality that you want in a film um, from someone who's lip syncing and like balancing that is is going to be tricky and we're going to experiment with both this year. I think the big thing for us is that this season we, we don't have answers. Every project is going to be different. It's all going to be experimentation. And next season, as we enter, hopefully, back into live performances with our 40th anniversary, we'll be able to look back and figure out what worked and what didn't work and try to incorporate 
the new virtual reality from from coming out of this changed with the live performances and how do those two inter intersect and we won't know that till we're till we're on the other side I think we we jumped ahead a little bit like are you saying that your season that you're planning on presenting this fall is an all digital season it's an all virtual season it's an all I mean the season's almost all virtual we'll produce at least two pieces of content each month so we're looking at 15 or 16 pieces um, and then our very last production which is that um, version of Magic Flute that we're calling Black Flute will be both live and virtual and hopefully by then we'll have figured out how to do the both how to do both at the same time and not have one seem like the lesser form of the other so how is this being delivered to audiences is it, are, is it something to enjoy while it's happening or is it all prefabricated and then people can watch it when they want to so most of it is not live we're creating um something we're called envision uh which is an opera house without walls which which has all these different spaces so there will be a space for live performance or live artist receptions or live lectures by scholars most of the content uh, will not be live, but it won't necessarily all be film content for either. So for instance, um, our first piece is going to be a, an episodic podcast radio version of Fairy Queen in the style of a 1940s radio show. Um, we also hope to do a sort of telephone opera that we're figuring out for later in the fall. So we're, we're looking at old technologies as well as new technologies. And every project will be diff will be totally different. We're also doing like a documentary of historic sites on the on the Underground Railroad in DC that'll be kind of using those the George Crumb that I was talking about as a medium for telling documentaries, um, documentary storytelling. Uh, and we don't, again, we don't know what that looks like just yet. Like every month we're, we'll be doing a new adventure in a totally different form, which is really scary <laughs> to say. What are, you, what are you most excited about and most apprehensive about for the future? for in series and next season? Um, you know, this I, this season, I'm very bullish. We, we figured out a financial model where we're not, not going to have to, uh, to monetize it, which is great because I don't think you can monetize this streaming stuff uh, in the next year at least, um, especially not for a company our size. Um, I really look forward to being able to reach new audiences in a real way, in a way that we we certainly have never been able to, but I don't think opera houses in general have been able to. Um, and and the new forms, I, I mean, I say they're scary, but I'm excited to learn them. Um, we're not everything's gonna be good. We're gonna we're gonna make some things that that don't work. Um, and certainly not everything's gonna work for everyone. But I look forward to the learning and coming out on the other side with uh, hopefully audiences that are willing to take in opera in a different way than than the 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 only way we take it in which is going to the theater in the evening and sitting for 90 minutes to three hours i mean that is definitely i think the blessing of the moment that we're in right now tim is that we get to redefine for better what this art form can be yeah precisely so precisely and audiences are willing to go on that journey in a way they wouldn't be otherwise we're teasing this episode by calling it the digital opera house and it seems like it's something that you have thought about or that you and your colleagues have thought about. Can you give us any insight into what those conversations have been like and how you can repurpose, you know, Zoom or 
telephone technology or whatever else you're thinking about to sort of give people a different experience than just Stephanie Blythe singing with a ukulele. Which <laughs> singing I- wonderfully with a ukulele. <laughs> um, I mean, a We're lot dragging of our Stephanie Blythe now. in this episode. So. Um, A a lot of our conversations are about this digital opera house thing now because we're in the middle of working with a web design company and they, we hired, our our, our first goal in hiring a company was to find people who would, who were willing to sit down and think creatively about a new way of, of, of a a web experience. Um, So for instance, we're working with a company called Rally, which is a, a group of, I mean, I don't even know if they've graduated from from undergrad students in Toronto who who decided Zoom wasn't good enough and have invented this new social gathering method where your the volume of of what you hear is based on where you are geographically in the room. So if you're closer to these people, you'll be part of their conversation, but you can still hear all the other conversations in the room. And if you hear something that interests you, you can jump over there. Um, and then you can also take the stage, which means if I'm the host, I could all of a sudden be performing, but I can still hear all the other ambient noise just at a lower volume level. So I can hear applause. I can People can heckle me if they want, um, but it really replicates the, the social experience. So for instance, we're gonna embed that into our bar lounge area um, so that people could have an artist reception that 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 is that's really mimicking the social experience or they could reserve it to have a watch party with their friends and that's a a benefit that we could give subscribers Um, and then we'll we'll have two different theaters one will be an experimental black box where we'll house all of of our less traditional stuff and then we'll have a a more traditional um, Odeon is what we're calling it, but an opera house where we put the more traditional stuff. There'll be a backstage area so subscribers can go backstage and there'll be opportunities there that you go in the dressing room and meet an artist. Um, and then there'll also be a space where we'll embed live streaming technology so we can do a monthly live recital series or any other live events we, we want to have. So you're going to put in a bunch of cameras in the artists' homes and so they can like, oh, I have to go change for the reception and then we can follow them and <laughs> see them pull off their wig and stuff like that. <laughs> George Orwell, the opera. <laughs> Timothy Nelson is the artistic director of the In Series. You can learn more at inseries.org. Tim, thanks so much for hanging out with us. Thank you guys. It's been awesome. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. First and foremost, in these surreal times, I hope that you and the people that you love are healthy and safe. Here at the OBS, we continue to do our show, and we're continuing to document all things opera-related in the time of corona, and we want to hear your voice. Are you an employee of the opera world whose work has been affected by COVID-19, a singer who has lost a job or gained a different job, a fan who's desperate to see something live in person and can't Let us know how you're coping with your own shelter-in-place order. Send your message or your voice memo up to 60 seconds to operaboxscore at gmail.com, and we might feature you on our show. We want to hear from you. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week. The Metropolitan Opera said on Monday that the coronavirus panic would force the company to cancel its fall season. 
The company, which last performed live on March 11th, now hopes to return with a gala on New Year's Eve after its longest interruption in more than a century. Last Friday, the Trump administration, with no advance notice, removed warnings contained in guidance for the reopening of houses of worship that singing in choirs can spread the coronavirus. By Saturday, that version was replaced by an updated guidance that no longer includes any reference to choirs or congregants singing and the risk for spreading the virus. In other words, the government is trying to kill us. Leaders of major choral organizations met to present Singing What We Can Do, a web event exploring the possibilities for singing as physical distancing guidelines continue. Presentations included new initiatives and existing and emerging technologies to reduce internet lag and keep artists connected and performing in real time. In short, it's not the same as before, and that may be disappointing, but technology is pretty cool. And as artists, we are predisposed to creativity, so let's use it. In the world of performing arts, the coronavirus pandemic has already sunk summer, and now it's tanking fall. Even as reopened barbershops, beaches, and bookstores herald the resumption of economic life across America, concert promoters, theater presenters, orchestras, and dance companies are ripping up their 2020 calendars and hoping 2021 will mark a new beginning. Christopher Ashley, artistic director at San Diego's La Jolla Playhouse, says, there's a balancing act between trying to stay hopeful and being realistic. Lincoln Center has announced that artistic director Jane Moss is stepping down from her position effective August 1st. Moss had been artistic director since 1992 and created several unique initiatives that de developed the organization. Wigmore Hall's director, John Gihuli, announced a new series of live lunchtime concerts every weekday in June in collaboration with BBC Radio 3. These will be produced in adherence with the latest government coronavirus advice. The Teatro La Fenice has announced its reopening on June 2nd. The theater announced that on that day, uh, the day of the Festa della Repubblica, La Fenice will reopen for a visitor's tour. The future King of England is not encouraging. While many theaters and concert halls are struggling during lockdown with no clear indication of what shows of when shows might resume, Prince Charles said that it was important to find a way of keeping these orchestras and other arts bodies going. The Prince, who is a patron of dozens of arts institutions, noted they were of enormous importance to the economy. They're in terrible difficulties, of course, because how are they going to be able to restart? It is a very expensive art form, but it is crucial because it has such a worldwide impact. And so we have to find a way to make sure these marvelous people and organizations are going to survive through all this. A trombonist for the Austin Symphony Orchestra has been relieved of their position following a series of racist Facebook posts. As of Sunday, Austin Opera has also severed ties with the musician. Meanwhile, in New Zealand, the government has announced a $175 million package to boost the arts and creative sector in the wake of COVID-19. A Bolivian orchestra found themselves stuck in Germany when quarantine hit and have spent the last few months at a supposedly haunted castle. Oh yeah, it's also surrounded by wolves, so that sounds pretty fun. Exit stage right, French soprano Madi Mesplet has died at age 98, and American conductor and the former artistic director of Arizona opera Joel Revzen has passed away due to complications related to COVID-19. And finally, on this day, June 1st, in 1728, the Royal Academy of Music closes after a revival performance of Handel's Admeto in London. In, eight, in 1804, birth of Russian composer Mikhail Glinka in Novospaskoye, Russia. In 1906, birth of English recording executive Walter Legge in London, that is the husband of Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. Uh, in 1945, birth of American mezzo-soprano Frederica von Stade in Somerville, New Jersey. 
1946, the birth of American soprano Carol Neblett in Modesto, California. In 1966, the debut of Italian tenor Luciano Pavarotti at Covent Garden in London. And in 1971, the first performance of Menotti's The Hero in Philadelphia. And that's your two-minute drill. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. Welcome to the show. I know that uh, things are crazy. You live in the thick of it in downtown Chicago, in the South Loop of Chicago. And we are recording on June 1st, uh, Monday, which is the, what, the third day of protests in Chicago? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're going into, it is dark now, so we're going on night three of both the protests and the city curfew. So... Yeah, yeah, it's a it's an intense time. It's a strange time to be talking about opera. And at my other job, we are in the middle of Pledge Drive. And um, it's just, it feels so, you know... It, it, feels, it almost feels irresponsible <laughs> to ask people for money about other things. But we, or attention, even. You know, we um, postponed the pledge because we were noticed to have it in March on the first day of baseball, uh, opening day. But then COVID happened. So, um, you know, most arts organizations, fiscal years end at the end of June. So we have no choice but to push forward with this. So, Yeah, it's true. Like there's nothing appealing or attractive right now with the arts organizations going around holding out their begging bowls, you know, the like Save the Met campaign. I mean, better that these arts organizations were actually giving away money, especially in this moment that we're now in with police brutality. Put your money where your mouth is. Well, yeah, I will say it feels mildly, I won't go all the way to tone deaf, but it was really hard for me to try to find a way to to actually come and, and give thoughts tonight because there there is so much going on. Um, but I have seen arts organizations step up in the wake of all of this. You've seen uh, campaigns to, quote, raise the melanin on social media. Uh, the recording industry is doing a blackout Tuesday, tomorrow, to feature black artists, black music, black producers. Um, I would love to see, you know, classical music organizations step up and do something similar. And I feel like we might in the, in the coming days. And a racist got fired yesterday, so that's a silver lining. <laughs> the trombonist, whatever you played. What, what instrument did uh, you play? She played. I actually watched this play out on social media in real time. Uh, by the, the, the comments were first posted on the Book of Faces uh, Saturday night. By Sunday morning, they were being widely circulated through a number of different circles. And by 
late afternoon, one of the organizations that she played for uh, had released her. And by later Sunday night, the other organization had released her. So it was- Was her, was, name, was uh, her name Karen by any chance? You know, I thought about it. I was like, <laughs> man, if that if that were the case. No, but I mean, it, and it was, yeah, I, I wasn't really sure how it was gonna go, but the, the, uh, the, the clapback was swift uh, and and justly deserved as someone who read the, the posts. So the Met uh, is basically saying, okay, we're, we'll say New Year's, New Year's Eve. Is that when their next live event is going to be? That's what they said, New Year's Eve. Yeah, that's the next one on the calendar. And this is enough. This is a story that we're going to be seeing a lot of in the next couple of weeks because we have known for a long time that the idea that anything could happen like this in 2020 is slim to none, like barring some sort of divine intervention, deus ex machina. Yeah, I'm not quite sure, I'm not quite sure like what Trashcan Peter Gelb's been hiding under. Like, it seems like it's a big deal that he's saying that the Met building is not gonna be open, but it's like, all you gotta do to test a theory is say it out loud, right? So if I'm like, I know, we should put people in a pressurized steel tube at 35,000 feet and allow them to smoke. Obviously, that's not going to happen anymore, right? People don't smoke on planes. If I'm like, I know we're going to have 3,000 people in an auditorium starting in September, clearly that's not going to happen. Yeah, it's kind of like that episode of 30 Rock where the where they keep delaying the flight by 30 minutes at a time and hoping that no one will notice. <laughs> um where they're they're just trying to set real set expectations far enough out that by the time you reach them, of course, there's no way that it's going to happen, uh, and that way you can kind of crank the degrees up on that pot of boiling water. Yeah, but then of course you know then you have uh, La Fenice opening up on June second. I mean, just for for tours, obviously. So like, what what am I missing here? Why is the, the heart of this pandemic Italy, it, heart of it in Europe at least? Is it just that they're so much farther ahead of the, the curve of, say, our country that, that they're doing this? Well, they're not announcing that they're doing, you know, the orchestra and the chorus and full staging. They're just taking they're just opening the building. That's the press release. We are actually opening the doors for people to come in and, you know, see this space as it's hist historically important and, you know, to take a peek behind the curtain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm not sure when their first performances are scheduled, but I think they just wanted to get that publicity. Probably out. not in 2020. I, I don't think they know when their first performances are, probably. Yeah. Talking about the future king of England, you, you got you to get the accent right here, Matt. Uh, it's important to find a way of keeping these orchestras and other arts bodies going. Well, uh, yes, thank you so much for that insight. It's absolutely critical to keep these orchestras and other arts bodies going. We all know that. How? That's the question. Be New Zealand, how? You, that's how. Uh, yeah, New Zealand, right. The government has announced a 175 million package to boost the arts and creative sector in the wake of COVID-19. Don't, don't comfort Jacinda Ardern. She's really MVP. Uh, yeah, for real. Let's Sorry, that, that was my that was my flight of the Concords. Never mind. Before <laughs> your time, Matt. No, I, I applauded that that effort of accent. It was very nice. I mean, yeah, let's <laughs> let's we'll call it what it is. New Zealand's really kind of leading the game in terms of leadership. I'm not going to say it's because of Jacinda Ardern and the fact that she's a lady and knows how to get stuff done. Oops, I guess I just did. 
Did anyone watch any of the interview where there was an earthquake that started in the middle of it? And she's just like, oh, no. Yeah, okay. We're fine. Anyway, continuing on. Just unflappable. Spoken like the mother of a toddler who does <laughs> not have time for your business. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's not scared of earthquakes because she owns earthquakes. Uh, Joel Revzen passing away, uh, complications related to COVID-19, of course. Great conductor, former AD at Arizona Opera, and a staff conductor at the Metropolitan Opera as well. Uh, a serious loss there. Tell me about the French soprano Madi Mesplay. Madi Mesplay is one of those voices that is not for everybody. I mean, it's got a lot of tang to it. It's like champagne vinegar. And the voice is... And not a lot of core. The voice is sort of freakishly high. And it actually is not as high as like Sabine Devier or something like that. But just something about the tone quality makes it sound like a fourth higher than any other coloratura. Um, This clip that we heard was one of my favorite recordings from when I was, you know loving listening to Rossini. I still do, but like when I was really into Rossini, uh, I thought this was so cool. And you would never hear anybody sing ornaments like that. They're completely anachronistic. But I live for a time when people just interpolated high F sharp <laughs> at the end of their arias. To make a to make a sports comparison, uh, and also someone who has origins in the same country, uh, I, I kind of think of it as like a Surya Bonali in a way, in terms of like, she was like the bad girl of skating and like, I'm French, I'm black. I do backflips. I do what I want. You know I mean? She just, and then she became this like both reviled and beloved because she was bucking the system so hard in terms of technique. So. Well, she's sort of a contemporary of Kalas and um, mm-hmm. it's just interesting. You know, they both sang Lucia de Lamamore. It's interesting to hear side by side, if you have time to listen to a mad scene sung by Collis and a mad scene from Lucia sung by Madi Masplay and what the approach is. And I have to say that Madi Masplay brings it in a way that only a coloratura with endless high notes can. And it's definitely not as um, realistic, but there's something that is insane about hearing a voice like that sing those scales and adding all those interpolated high notes. So I'm here for it. I've, I've never been mad at it. And uh, I know it's not a voice, like I said, for everybody, but I, I still enjoy it a lot. And, I'm and it is the possibly like the fastest bell song ever recorded. It's so <laughs> fast. It sounds like you're playing the record on double time. That's before your time, George. So the um, video released by the ACDA, the American Choral Directors Association, uh-huh. and uh-huh. Uh, the National Association of Teachers of Singing uh, came out between the last time we recorded and today. And uh, singing what we can do. Um, yeah, I mean, this, there's really no, no news in this because that's stuff we've already been talking about. But it's just in direct contrast to what the government says we can do, which is go ahead, go to church, sing, you know, you'll be fine, you know. Well, it's driven by science, which, of course, is completely opposite from the federal government as well. But, I mean, give, give me the, the Cliff Notes version here. I mean, what is, for our listeners, the one takeaway that we want to extract from the Nats and the ACDA video? Well, a lot of the music making is going to happen in the format that we see right now, that we're recording on right now. A lot of folks are going to be behind the screen. So it, it is still kind of a bummer for acoustic, you know, performance in a group. So it's, they, they were trying to take it and kind of say, okay, literally what was in the title? What, 
what can we actually do? How are we able to continue making music, phonating, making noise if we can't do it in the way that we know how and have historically have been trained to do? So there's a lot of talk about ways to speed up your internet, fix your bandwidth, try to get things you know as quick as possible so that it's easier to do things uh, with collaborators behind other screens and other places six feet apart uh, in real time. Uh, how to get the best mic setup for the least amount of money. You know, again, our the blue what was it called? Blue Yeti. That yeah, might, blue Yeti. That's a that's a big fan for for everybody. So it's it's more it's less about we're going to do it the way we've always done it. It's we can't do it that way. So we've got to get creative and figure out ways to like make something happen within the parameters that we have. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, time to wrap this show up. Anybody got a good call or a bad call? Ashley Hargrave. Yeah, um, there's not a lot of good right now, um, but my good call is to Black Lives Matter. It is to organizations that are supporting folks of color. It's to arts organizations that are getting out in front of this and, and letting letting their stance on this be heard. So uh, my heart goes out to all of the protesters that are out there quite literally fighting the good fight and uh, Black Lives Matter. That's my good call. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. This podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. Creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. Thanks again to our guests, Harry Rose and Timothy Nelson. For Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera on the first of every month. We're back with an all-new podcast next Wednesday, June 10, with guests from American Baroque Opera, plus more opera news, more hot takes, more cold drinks. Join us.